the Tenuous Links podcast, home of the Golf Barons. Offering bloviated opinions on all things golf, discussing the game's biggest problems and some solutions to them as loosely as possible. Come add some swagger to your swing. Hello, Barons. Now, not many people you'll talk to in golf have had the breadth of experience of today's guest. It's this diversity of touch points and not some glamorous public profile, which is most interesting. Well, potentially. From playing amateur golf to managing multiple golf retail businesses to caddying on the PGA Tour and to overseeing a golf brand that continues to grow in Australia and around the world. He's fallen both in love and out of love at various times with playing, but despite that, he's still deeply connected and committed to the game of golf. Welcome to the Tenuous Links Golf Podcast, Anthony Gurkovich from Mizuno Golf. Thanks, Phil. How are you? Good start. What are you channeling me? You've heard about grumpy Phil. Now there's grumpy Anthony. Oh, well, Phil, I'm quite nervous in the aura of that pink cap that you've got on um, and just feel a little out of sorts and a little uneasy. It's raising a few queries well, and questions time. for myself, to be honest. Well, let's try and play off that because I think the first question most people were asking was who, but we'll deal with that later. Now, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, Anthony, just, just some background on you and golf. Yep. Playing golf. Rightio. Where did it all start? Where did it all start? Who introduced you to the game? So a couple of mates um, started golf out at Medway when we were around the age of 15, 16, and we were all playing junior footy at the time. And they is a bit of a change um, probably a little undersized for the more older divisions of football teams that we were developing into and moving into, they decided to take up golf. So being uh, not very interested in the game, would go up to the Oval and watch the guys hit and would ridicule and um, talk down about how uh, non-masculine the game was and they should be doing football and doing all this sort of stuff. And anyway, um, let them go and... They became obsessed and they would ride their bikes with their buggies behind down to Sunshine Golf Course, uh, down to Medway Golf Course, play golf. And then um, it was when I finished high school in year 12 at uh, 18 years of age, I came across the game and was up the oval with the guys and the mates. And I said, here, give us a go. And I think that sweet connection when you land one out of the middle with a seven iron um, and you just go, that felt like nothing. Um, and I think from there... Up at the Oval, it was just the that's what started the desire to become better at the game and enjoy. And this passion developed that I, after high school, then went to uh, uni. And it's fair to say that in the couple of years that I was at uni, I tell the story that I spent more time on the golf course than I did in the uh, classes at the lectures. Um, and I would play probably three times, four times a week, weekdays down at Sunshine Golf Club. Um, just with the guys, the mates from up the corner and stuff and quickly developed into an ability to shoot a score in the uh, 90s, um, having started inside of six months from the game and was hooked basically. Um, college was to, or uni was to start and it was like, yeah, you know what, I think I'll go and play golf today, have a look at the weather outside, it's better. So we'd go and play 18 holes, then come home, go and hit balls up the oval as a bit of practice. And then, uh, oh, what have I missed from uh, uni today? Catch up on uni with a mate and go from there. And it's just developed into a career and working life, Phil. And that concludes our podcast. No, I'm just, uh, so, <laughs> but in terms, of, in terms of this idea of a perfectly struck shot, was it your very first foray, like your very first time hitting balls where one came out of the middle? Or was it, that was close, not quite enough, I've got to keep going, that was close, not... I mean, do you, do you, was there a clear moment, like an aha moment? Was there a little bit of a Eureka Archimedes situation? I think you're accurate with your comments there, Phil. I wouldn't say that I struck most shots out of the middle at that first instance, but it was, I think, the having got close to the centre of the golf club with these um, terribly conditioned golf balls out of a mate's practice ball bag up on the oval, it was like, oh, that's an interesting feel. It almost feels like nothing through the hands. So... Can I recreate that? How do I get that feeling again? That was euphoric. It was amazing. Um, this is a very difficult action to undertake and to get that feedback through the hands of virtually no feedback 
And I'd be only talking about a cast golf club, um, middle of the range or entry level package set golf club. But even to not experience that in not picking up a golf club at all to get that. And I wouldn't say that I got it in the first instance of just hitting balls with my mates either. It was would have come after two or three sessions up there and spending a few hours. But then it was like, well, yeah, this is good. I don't mind this. This is uh, something that is going to be a challenge. Let's get involved with this game and see where we can get to. Um, and then I guess competitive nature just takes over. You go out on the golf course and you shoot 120 or 130 in your first round of golf. Phil, your first score would have been 100 and plus? Yeah, 60, yep. Yep. Um, I was longer so then. So you come in at those – sorry? I was longer then. I used to hit it further when I first started playing. Yep, whatever. Um, and – Shooting those scores, competitive nature t- takes over. And instead of shooting uh, bogeys and double bogeys and triple bogeys every hole, your score then comes down and this overwhelming competitive streak within you that you had as a junior playing football and playing soccer, basketball, whatever your sport was as a child, I guess takes over and you, that competitive spirit very rarely leaves you. Um, and it got the better of me. I became obsessed, definitely became obsessed to pursue working in the golf industry uh, in the early 90s. Did you have a goal at that, from a playing point of view, if we just deal with playing, did you have a goal at that time as opposed to I'd want to get as good as I can? Did you have a goal to mm. say, I think there's something in this? And, and then second to that, from a technique point of view, was it based on mimicry or was it based on whatever your brain said might be the best approach? I don't. I believe I didn't have a plan. It was just enjoy the game for what it was. Um, hit it off the tee, find it, hit it again onto a green. Hopefully, have two putts. Oh, that's a measure. Okay, that's par. Beautiful. I'll go to the next hole. Off the tee, find it, hit it on the, hit it from the fairway or the rough or the other fairway. Chunk it into the hole. Oh, that was a double bogey. I can't do that again. What did I do? Get onto the next tee, try and replicate the first hole swing, etc. So there was a lot of thought going on as I think a lot of golfers have um, but then coaching and uh, improvement wise came about from and I can't remember the series and we're talking back in the 90s from the news agency you could buy a weekly subscription and you got the folders I think it was improve your game um, based out of the UK and having taken up the game and uh, becoming obsessed by it to the point that I stopped playing junior footy and it was just play golf play golf practice golf and it filtered around the family that that's what I was doing. So there was support from within the family to develop a, a desire or a passion for this game and see where I could get to. So the, the subscription was undertaken by my nan and she would pay for the weekly, and I say it's weekly now, it may have been monthly, I can't recall, but I think you ended up with six folders and I would just sit there religiously reading um, and in guess instead of doing uh, uni work and stuff like that. It was reading golf at night. And you're then making me now think back, Phil, for a 21st birthday present, I was given a Ram Zebra putter. And I recall many, many hours spent on the lounge room floor, putting from the couch to the leg of the TV chair um, across the carpet. Didn't matter that people in the house were trying to watch TV. I was improving my game, doing my putting. Um, and probably the strongest part of my game would be my putting. And the other parts of the game I don't or didn't really focus on because I guess I didn't have that plan or structure. It was just play, see where you got to. And I guess in late 20s, I sort of recognized getting down to a low single figure handicap with all the work and hours that I was putting in. This is a level that I've got to and I don't know that I'm going to get to too much of a better position unless I devote a substantial amount more time of what I've been putting in. And I don't know that I'm actually that committed to get to that level. Was there a moment you knew you were hooked on the game? Just in explaining what I've explained there about university, spending more time on the golf course than in uni, um, I think is a fair indicator that, yeah, I was obsessed. But was there a moment, was there a particular moment, was it a, was it a birdie or a particular shot where you just said, yep, that's me, or do you think it just grew and grew and grew? Yeah, there wouldn't be one defining moment. I think it was just the overall aspect of the whole um, undertaking, going to the course, managing your time, managing your way around a golf course, managing your practice and tra- and I guess training, etc., to see that you could then play a competition. And I would say that I didn't become a member of a golf course for several years, maybe five years, four years or five years. So it was a lot of green fee rounds 
And I grew up out in the western suburbs, so it was Sunshine Golf Course, um, Keelor Golf Course, Melton Golf Course, uh, Werribee Golf Course out in that sort of area. Um, and then we're talking in the 90s here, so there wasn't the Sanctuary Lakes and the, those uh, courses that are there now type thing. But um, you would just play and then it got to the point that green fees were becoming a financial burden to the point that you started to explore the next level, which is membership. And for membership, oh, I get unlimited access seven days a week. Well, let's do that. So then it became, instead of 18 holes around, it became 27, 36 um, in a day type scenario. Yet there was a point, so in this journey of, of improvement, and I think what you've said there actually re- is replicated by the way a lot of people um, immerse themselves in the game, yet not, not always to that level in terms of obsession, yet there was a point where you then fell out of love with the yes. playing of the game. Uh, yeah. and took up cycling. But but prior to yeah. even taking up cycling, you'd, you'd fallen out of love playing the game. Yeah. So so what was it yeah. that, that caused that? And what could golf have done to not have that happen? Um, and I think that's only me personally, Phil, and because uh, I'm talking about here in the early, mid-90s type scenario. So you get to the late 90s, and I reckon that is when I'd started to wane or the interest had started to fall away because I'd made that, I guess, self-assessment of I'm at a low single-figure handicap um, and to get to scratch. And to touch back on the point of your saying, was there a goal? There wasn't a goal. But as I came under a double-digit handicap into the high single figures to then get down to five and you're playing with golfers of a similar or lower handicap and you aspire to be at the level that they're at. So that's where I want to get to. So that's, I guess, when that goal came in of trying to get to the five handicap, the four handicap, the three handicap. And I reckon I might have ended up at around about four um, and just thought, geez, it'd be great to get to scratch. But with where I am at the now, at now, where I am at now, I'm in a very good position. I don't know that I can get much lower without a lot more commitment of time. And I just don't have that time. Um, and you t- spoke about uh, managing retail stores, etc. And at that time, I was managing some retail, a major Melbourne retail store, uh, golf store in the city. And then not long after that, left there and went and managed another store up on the fifth level in a, another department store and was basically a small band. It was almost like a one-man band in that uh, fifth level store. And as a result of that, time became precious. And I just feel having identified that I wasn't uh, be, uh, able to contribute the time that I needed to to get lower, um, I know in watching golf, because I was an avid watcher of golf on TV, and I'm p- talking particularly about the Masters, um, and I can recall Greg Norman in 96 and <coughs> things like that that we don't want to talk too much more about. But I'm looking at his caddy, Tony Navarro, and almost taking an interest in Navarro himself, just looking at him walking around the way he conducted and held himself on the course, that sparked an interest for me. I thought, geez, this caddying thing would be nice to get into. And I guess I fell out of love with playing based around time and self-assessment, but was in love with this aspect or this mystery of, oh, what if I became a caddy? What can you do in regards to caddying? I can't play to the level I want, but I can be around people that can play to a level better than where I wanted to get to. If I could assist, that would be fantastic. So so when we move on to, so as we take that, we, we've now got this transition from, from playing. So it's not that you've lost a passion for golf. It's just that mm. the, the passion for the actual playing of the game waned as the passion for another element of the game, which is the beautiful thing about yes. the game, one of the many, started to grow. So caddying, you then moved into this caddying space. How did that opportunity even come about? How does someone say, I wouldn't mind being a caddy? That's it, I'm a caddy now. Yeah, um, I was fortunate at the uh, golf shop that I was working in that I had some golfers that were in the um, AIS and the VIS, the Australian Institute of Sport, Victorian Institute of Sport, so high-level amateurs. Come on, drop some names. And Oh, do you need to? Yeah, you do um, need to. We need to keep Kipper in check. Drop some names. Uh, Brad Lamb. Brad Meadows, and I can't think there was a girl as well that came on late in the scene, but her name escapes me at the moment. Anyway, um, out of Western Australia, sorry, and it won't come to me, so we'll move on. That's but, the um, worst attempted name drop. Of all. I mean, I have no names oh, well, to Phil. drop, but saying that I can't remember a name to drop is actually a penalty. 
Five yards. That's okay. I'll make up for it later, though. <laughs> yes, Don't worry. We're building I'll up make to up it. For this it is it the later. good stuff. Well, I'll try to make up to it. I'll try and make up right. for it with the caddying note out if we continue on there. Okay, so the opportunity. But, um, yeah. yeah, the opportunity came, and it was just a flippant comment. And it's interesting, um, you know, you seek – you're in the right place at the right time. And speaking about Brad Lamb, he was being allocated or being given um, equipment and product – in relation to gloves and soft goods and stuff. And he's going, oh, I don't like this color. I said, yeah, we'll swap it over in the shop type scenario. So we're swapping it over. And Brad said to me, and this was in 99, he said to me one day, he goes, oh, how will I ever repay you? And I said, you'll need to have me caddy for you one day and we'll call it even. And he sort of stopped in his tracks and like, oh, you serious? I said, yeah, I am. Um, and I was working full-time managing this shop at this time. Now, the shop dealt with goes, a brand. Oh, well, Hang on, j- just to deal with that, because this is an important connection, because it also speaks to your loyalty. So the shop, it wasn't just a brand of a shop. And we'll get back to the Bradland story really quickly, but it, it wasn't just a shop. It was the first concept shop in Australia. Yeah, Daimaru Golf Shop on the fifth floor, um, 211 Latrobe Street. Um, so it was within the Daimaru department store. It was the Japanese department store. So there was a an underlying theme that it would have golf equipment in there of a Japanese heritage. So it was very much a Mizuno stocked shop. But it also had the ability to have other brands in there as well, Callaway, Titleist. But Mizuno Callaway, was the Ping. But, but it was a Mizuno. Mizuno was DNA, the major Mizuno connection. Yeah. Anyway, so getting back to because I think that's important to make later on about loyalty. But but getting back. So that's to, where I first came in. That's where I came in contact with the brand in a major level, basically having touched on it previously. Yeah. So Brad Lamb. Um, but coming back to Brad Lamb, stood in his tracks. He goes, "Oh, well, interesting. You say that, and it's 1999. He goes, oh, "I've got to start in the Aussie Open." Do you want to do that for me? And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, where's that being played? He goes, Royal Sydney. I said, yeah, I'm in. And he goes, oh, are you sure? I said, yep. And he's just an amateur at the time. And um, having the first and the desire to get into this aspect of the game of golf, I um, resigned my position um, as the manager of the store um, because I'd also undertaken, identified in 97 when I was looking at the Masters and things like that, if I want to get into this caddying business, I've got to have a point of difference. So I went and undertook a 12-month massage course to become a massage therapist. And I thought if I'm able to get a gig as a caddy, I can double as a massage therapist as well, offering a better service than what the standard caddy could do. So Brad was aware of that other um, education I'd undertaken. And he then said, yep, let's go to Royal Sydney. So I ended up resigning from my position in late 99. I reckon it was November. Uh, jumped on a train, caught the train at my own expense up to Sydney. That was a delightful experience. Landed with my massage table and my case of belongings for the week of the Australian Open at Royal Sydney. Traipsed through Sydney to the accommodation that I'd organised and uh, then made contact with Brad. He'd had his family drive up um, because he's originally from Tarawinji, just out of Wangaratta there. So his mother, father had driven him up. And I was in the uh, hotel that I'd organised and then made my way over to the course after making connection with Brad and then uh, started the journey of caddying off the first tee at Royal Sydney. So your preparation um, was thorough uh, in terms of what does a caddy do? Well, I guess they just whack the bag over the shoulder. So how long did it take you caddying before you were started being asked for advice or before you were fired for the first time? Yeah, um, good question. And it's interesting you say that because I do remember feedback from Brad very early on at Royal Sydney because we went out uh, on the practice round and we played, I think at the time, with Steve Allen, name drop. Not bad. Andrew Webster and went around Royal Sydney and I'm baptism by fire. I've got no idea what I'm doing. I'm trying to juggle a bag, juggle a towel, throwing golf balls at me in a practice round. I'm watching the other caddies put tees down in potential pin placements on greens, clean this club, rake the bunker. Here's the yardage book. I go, what do I do with the yardage book? Oh, well, you've got to tell me this. There's the spot. So I'm learning what the paint spots are on the fairways and how far they're out and looking at the yardage book and trying to reference all this information for Brad. So I could see Brad would have been observing me or a third party would be observing, just absolutely laughing inside going, this guy's got no clue. Um, But as we got around and we finished, I guess, our first practice round, our second practice round, Brad had indicated, he goes, we... You seem to be knowing what you're doing um, type scenario, as in movement and letting the player move through to the tee first and 
pins in and raking bunkers and dropping the bag and pulling the putter out when they're in the bunker, leaning it on the bag and all that sort of stuff. And I just sort of picked that up from watching the Masters and golf on TV. You just watch the other caddies. That's what they sort of do. Um, so I was fortunate enough to uh, go out in the first round for that Open. And this was the week after the South Australian Open. And Andrew Webster was sharing uh, stories of Wayne Riley at the SA Open where he was in contention on the final nine. And there may have been some colourful language used when they were searching for a ball and stuff. And in the practice round, that became the... Uh, the commentary and the humour content for the the practice round and my first gig at caddying. And I was a little bit, oh, awestruck in the names of Wayne Riley, Steve Allen. You've seen these guys on TV. You're now in the, behind the ropes with these guys. And talking about Brad being in the VIS, he was also in the VIS with Bads and Kipper. We won't call Kipper a name drop, will we? Yeah, that's a pretty good um, one. That's my favourite. So um, there were conversations on the practice range where they're talking to bads and stuff like that and you've heard of this guy and seen him and been involved um, in watching me on TV and going, oh, this kid's got some talent and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, um, lo and behold, the draw comes out on the Thursday. We draw Wayne Riley. And Brad says, wow, are we in for a baptism of fire here? And I reckon it was on the fourth hole, par three, Happy to be corrected by anyone if they want to, but I, going off memory from 99, I reckon it was the fourth hole par three. And Wayne Riley's his own unique character, having won the Australian Open the year pre, prior or previous winner. Um, he had a little bit of authority, well, so he thought anyway, and was quite demonstrative in his um, demands of the AGU officials walking with us. And I was standing there at times in sheer fear not knowing if he was talking to me, talking to a rules official, talking to the other players. Um, so it was quite interesting introduction into caddying. And I guess I look back on it now and smiling and smirking to myself, thinking if you can get through um, an introduction in your first gig of caddying and Wayne Riley's in the first two groups, uh, the first group on the first two days, you should go okay or have a reasonable uh, length at this sort of gig. So we managed to make the cut. I reckon it was on the number. And I reckon Brad may have holed a putt on the 18th green on the second day to make it um, of reasonable length. And then I really can't recall after that who we played with, etc. because the highlight was the Wayne Riley stories and the practice rounds. But then to experience two rounds with this icon of Australian golf and this character of Australian golf as well is something that I still talk about today when I catch up with Brad and is referenced uh, regularly with Brad and myself about how entertaining it was and how much of a great experience it was. So to project one for you and not to, to drop a name because it's not mine, but uh, I can tell you that a mate of mine caddied for Wayne Riley in 1987 at the, it might have been the Eon FM or a Pro-Am at Ivanhoe Golf Course over two days. And so we had the joy of, I was caddying for uh, Vaughan Summers and another mate of mine was catting for Anthony Gilligan with Wayne Riley. And so we, as 14 and 15-year-olds, had the joy of listening to some of Wayne Riley's stories in colourful language. And we grew up very, very fast over the course of <laughs> over the course of two days. Um, now, at one point in time, I, I recall you mentioning a, a practice round that you caddied for Brad and he was playing with uh, oh, a, a bit yeah. of an icon of Australian golf. So... Just to how that came about, Phil, just for what it's worth. So Brad made that cut on that Australian Open and progressed and played through the weekend and then um, said to me at the end of that round, he goes, mate, uh, you seem to, that's where he was. It was at the end of the first event. And he said, you seem to know what you're doing. I'd like to have you on the bag again. I said, okay, no worries. Perfect. Came back to Melbourne and stuff. And then early January of 2000 was the Vic Open. It was a non-sanctioned event at that time. I think it may have been Von Nida Tour, like a 100,000 event, etc. Um, Brad had a start in it, asked me to caddy. I wasn't working at the time of uh, in a full-time capacity, so I said, yep, no problem. Ended up caddying for him, um, and to keep this short, uh, he basically was involved in a playoff, and we played in the second last or the third last group on the last day. Endured a rain, rain delay with Brad's ball marked on the 18th green. And it was about six foot right of the hole uh, on the 18th at Cranbourne that year it was played. He went out and hold it after an hour rain delay to sit at 14 under and match the clubhouse leader of Jens Nilsson out of Sweden, I believe. Um, we went then went down the 10th hole, which was a short par five. Um, and Brad was successful in making par on the hole. 
and uh, won the Vic Open as an amateur. And so second gig out, uh, got a title to the name, um, which was a bit exciting for me, having a baptism by fire in November to do nothing in December caddying and then come out in January, win that event. That then got Brad invited to the Greg Norman Invitational that you touch on, Phil. And as a result of that and winning that event, Brad was invited to play in a marquee practice round group with Greg Norman, Adam Scott and Aaron Baddeley. Oh, and so I had the fortune of spending some uh, time with Kipper on the, on the fairways. And I got to say, it was a pretty intimidating sight standing on the first tee at the lakes in a practice round when the media are five and six deep and I've got the bag and the players standing on the tee next to Greg Norman, Bads and Adam Scott. And they're just talking, shooting the breeze. And I can't get a golf club to the player because this gallery in the way of five and six media, I sure managed to push my way through eventually. And I think I got to Brad and he goes, this is an effing joke. And I said, mate, this is going to be different. Um, and I've got to say, the heart was a race with just the adrenaline that was pumping, being within touching distance of Greg Norman. And now you look at it, at Adam Scott, Aaron Baddeley, what they've gone on to achieve in the game as well. Um, but I guess... As I said earlier, with that Royal Sydney situation, I'm now standing in New South Wales on the Lakes Golf Course first tee within touching distance of Greg Norman, who you've always seen on TV and in awe of for what he did for golf itself and then for Australian golf as well to put us on the map. And I've got the opportunity to be physically six, six feet away from this guy. This is just an experience that money can't buy. And did Kipper go out of his way to make you feel as uncomfortable as he and Ellenby did with Nathan Green? Um, I mean, did he was he playing mind games and you know trying to hustle you out of the way so that you didn't cut his lunch? Look, Kipper and I know uh, have known each other over the years from when we were carrying uh, golf bags back in the day, and I don't feel that we ever had that sort of uh, relationship, Phil. And I would put that down to respect. I respect what he was doing. He obviously respected what I was doing, so we wouldn't go to the levels. Um, that he probably got to with other part players and caddies. But so, no, he didn't uh, make me feel uncomfortable. He was more engaging, if anything, sharing stories and caddying little tricks and tricks of the trade that he'd picked up over his journey in caddying for Bads as well. So so the caddying thing, so uh, so far we've we've started with caddying for a, a, an amateur that's moved on to caddying at the Greg Norman Invitational for Brad Lamb with, surrounded by two uh, future superstars and one of the greatest of all time. How did you end up in the US? Uh, yeah, so, um, and this probably touches on, Phil, a little bit of falling out of love with the game as well from a playing aspect for myself. Um, working, so that was 2000 and then late 2000, there was a um, PGA golf show on in the wholesale industry, the golf wholesale retail industry. And I was doing some uh, side work um just doing some demo days and things like that uh, to bring in some income in not working full time and never knew where this caddying gig was going to go. So as you say, feel the best preparation ever, um, but nothing like flying by the seat of your pants. So I happened to do some caddying over the rest of that uh, season, that 2000 season. And then um, late 2000, the plan was Brad was going to head to Europe and turn pro, etc. Well, that didn't eventuate. But then did some more caddying um, and this PGA show was on, uh, I can't recall, late in the year. And I went and did some work for Mizuno as an assistant up there at the Homebush, the Olympic Stadium where they had the show. Was working there and as a result, spoke to the person that was running Mizuno at the time, a distributor, and said that you need someone in the office doing this job with all the questions that I'm getting about the Mizuno product. And he said, well, do you want the job? And I said, yeah, for sure. So took that job in the office as a full-time uh, gig. But then when the golf summer season was on, I was using my annual leave um, from working in golf full-time, uh, five days a week, to then go out and caddy in events and then come back from a week of caddying or two weeks of caddying at a time to then work full-time again. So I think I burnt myself out in relation to being around golf. But then also in playing myself, Having been exposed to golfers at the professional level and how easy they make the game appear and seem um, from the caddying aspect, I could relate to the way they played. However, not practicing myself, I chose not to go and play because I would only frustrate myself through not being able to practice 
to want to play to the level of the golfers that I was um, in the company of at a professional level, not expecting too much of myself, high expectations maybe, but not being able to play to that level, just I thought, no, nah, I don't want to play, I don't want to play. So that's what drove me to not play. So I continued to do the caddying across 2001, 2002, 2003, but it was in... Um, early 2003 that there was the co-sanctioned um, nationwide tour events with uh, I think Europe maybe and Australia that they played out at Kuyonga in South Australia and I happened to be caddying for Andrew Shuden at the time for that season. Uh, had Who's gone now his... caddying for the, the, the now caddy for Cam Davis on the PGA Tour? Yeah. Am I making up for the name drops Phil? You okay? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. We're, we're getting some momentum now. All right, thank you. Just I had to warm Thank up, you. Phil. You know, it's the pink hat that you're wearing is a bit, a bit embarrassing for hat. me anyway. So that co-sanctioned event was caddying for Andrew Shuden at the time, and we were partnered with a guy from the US off the Nationwide Tour called Kevin Johnson, KJ. And he just had, as you said earlier, uh, Phil, a 14 or 15-year-old kid who's a member at the club caddying for him. And we'd gone down one of the early holes, and uh, I think – Shudes had hit it in the bunker and KJ may have hit it in the bunker and Shudes or KJ had hit hit out first. And I said, don't worry, mate, i got it for you. Like, I'll cover the bunker for you and stuff. He goes, mate, that'd be awesome. Appreciate it. And he was referencing the kid like he's young. He doesn't. I said, mate, it's fine. No worries. So I was raking his bunkers even when we weren't in the bunkers, etc. Um, and sort of struck a friendship or a relationship with him on in the first two rounds. And he said to me, he goes, mate, you should come to the US and caddy for me. I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah, mate, you're welcome. I'll have you in a heartbeat. So we exchanged details, etc. And that was probably in February at a guest fill that that event was on in Kuyonga. Finished that season, uh, went over to New Zealand with Shudes, came back, uh, finished that season doing the full-time work at Mizuno Distributor uh, in Kew. Then made contact with KJ. Yeah, I'm going to come over. Was speaking to my wife at the time. Um, this is what we're thinking of doing. Didn't have children, so it was pre-kids. Yep, yep, yep. Wife comes home, and as you say, Phil, nothing like brilliant preparation. She comes home and she says, well, we need to leave June 1. I've got approved leave without pay for three months. I said, oh, I haven't organised anything. She goes, well, we'll go on June 1. So I quickly went to work. We're going. I'm going overseas, leave without pay. So bought tickets, uh, tried to make contact with KJ. Nothing eventuated coming back into my inbox via email from him. At that time, didn't have, uh, didn't bother calling uh, his cell or anything like that. So traipsed over to the US uh, with the wife and there for three months, basically, and was planning on following the tour. Had mapped out a loose plan of following the tour. Had a mate. Uh, Jason Hamilton that was caddying for Scott Laycock at the time because Scott Laycock had had a good run on, in Australia and I think co-sanctioned events as, as well and got himself onto the, the main tour. So that's where he was caddying and landed in the US, did some sightseeing, drove over to Vegas, did some more sightseeing, then took a flight up to Detroit. Uh, sorry, flight into Chicago, then drove to, De to Detroit, did a Ladies event for Jason Hamilton's girlfriend on the Futures Tour, the Ladies Future Tour. Then drove down to Tennessee because there was a, P a nationwide event at Knoxville and had got the accommodation all organised and stuff and um, was went out to the course uh, for the Knoxville Open, stood in the car park with all of the American guys looking for players as well and I was trying to seek out Kevin Johnson. Where is he? Where is he? Here I am, mate. We're ready to go. Stood there Monday, nothing. Stood there Tuesday, nothing. Stood there Wednesday morning, day of the Pro-Am. Where is he? Couldn't find him. And I don't know how I had missed him. But then went over to the officials and uh, Kevin Johnson, as he registered? Yeah, he's down on the tee with his caddy. So lump in the throat, little emotional. Um, I've traipsed halfway around the world to go and caddy for this guy. I haven't heard from him. I've been ghosted. Uh, yeah, sure enough, there he is hitting balls on the range, and I didn't have the courage to walk over to him. I was just so emotional and upset. I reckon I walked 10 miles back to the hotel where my wife and I were staying because she had the car. We'd had a hire car and stuff, let her have the car. Just walked back with uh, a fair bit of anger and emotion and uh, tabled all of that in the mind. What am I going to do? Well, I'm not going home. I've got something else to do. Right, let's in short term. Uh, went over to Memphis, drove over to Memphis, I think, the next morning to catch up with Jason Hamilton, followed Scott Laycock around and stuff, uh, spoke to Hamo. The next event on the Nationwide Tour was in Toronto, 
And at this time in 2003, Phil, we had a similar situation to now. There was the SARS virus going around. So, and Toronto was identified as a hotspot um, at the time. And I didn't know at the time, 2003, that hotspot was a word, but it's become very common in the last 18 months, that's for sure. And as a result of that, I was aware from standing in the parking lot, as the US call it, uh, at Knoxville, that a lot of the US caddies weren't traveling to Toronto because of the SARS outbreak and the SARS virus. And being in the right place at the right time, I'd sort of structured a plan with the wife. We're in Memphis at the moment. Let's go and see Elvis's house. Tick that off the bucket list. We're now going to drive to Toronto, Canada. So I think the drive's 20 hours or something like that. So whip up the just road. Just do that. There's nothing else to do. Yeah. You know, so drive up. But the wife was very stringent that we needed to be checked into a hotel on Sunday nights by 7 or 8 p.m., depending on which time zone we're in, so she could watch Sex in the City. Understand. So you do what you've got to do to keep the other member of the party happy. So did that, stop over Sunday night, get up the Monday, drive to the golf course. Um, and I can't recall the golf course name, but stood there in the car park. There was I was the first one there at around 7.30 or uh, 7.30 a.m., then another guy rolled up, an American guy, and he had come from a ladies' event close by, maybe Detroit or Michigan or somewhere there. And anyway, we were just talking, shooting the breeze, and um, I told him I was from Australia. He's inquiring about my story on how I got to here and stuff and told him about last week and hoping to get someone this week. I shot off to the bathroom, came back. Any players? He goes, oh, Casey Martin's over there. I said, and I knew of Casey Martin from his journey in suing the PGA in trying to uh, win his case um, with the disability of his leg to ride in a cart. So I was a little awestruck of hearing the name Casey Martin. So I just bounded over to Casey. G'day, Casey. How you going, mate? And he's at the boot of the car getting his sticks out and stuff. And I said, how are you looking for a caddy this week? Do you need someone? Oh, what's your name? Oh, I'm Girk from Australia. Sorry, what's your name? Oh, I'm Girk from Australia. Okay, Girk. Yeah, I do. Let's see how we go. Grab the bag. Off you go. And he's got his cart there straight away, which is basically no no roof on the cart so, um, and just the standard two-seat motorized cart. And he's sort of, uh, you know, Nike golf, Nike-sponsored player he was. So you got Nike head-to-toe apparel on him. He's got Nike bag and clubs and all that sort of thing. A little bit of a, um, information in relation to the cart. Um, you know, don't sit on the cart. Don't lean on the cart. It'll be seen as seeking outside assistance. I could be penalised two shots for it. So that was enough for me to just call that um, kryptonite. I won't go near it. I'll stay away from it. So we then went down first tee, practice round with Conrad Ray. Uh, Conrad Ray was a guy that had gone to Stanford University with Casey um, that I later found out. So uh, we did a practice round with uh, known as C-Ray. So we did a practice round with C-Ray. Um, walked around, followed Casey in the cart. So that was a new learning as well after having caddied a couple of years for, I guess, able-bodied golfers that just walk the fairway with you. Now I'm chasing a motorized cart down the fairway, having been a little bit more experienced in juggling towels, umbrellas, clubs, rakes, bag, drink bottles, balls and scorecards and yardage books and stuff like that. Here's a new level of learning that I've now got to undertake. We did, we we're on, a, I reckon, the 15th or 16th green in that practice round. And Casey said, he goes, you know what, Gurk, I'm pretty bummed. I said, what's up, mate? And he goes, you know what, I'm liking what I'm seeing for you, but I've just committed to my man for the rest of the season and his wife wouldn't let him come up here to Toronto because of SARS. I said, oh, well, mate, it is what it is. We'll just play it out this week and see what happens. You know, that's okay. No worries. Did that round, finished the practice round, then we go down the practice range. Um, cue name drop so i'm standing behind casey as he's punching balls out down the fairway and um i'm now a little more comfortable with the uh the company of casey having spent 18 holes with him and with his mate c ray and they're talking on the practice range now and casey starts saying oh yeah tw and noda and i'm sort of there going looking at going, i think he's talking about tiger woods and he's talking about Noda Begay. And I'm like pinching myself going, hang on a minute. Oh, wow. Jeez, I'm in a, an elite uh, player's name here. Uh, and he's just mentioning like I mentioned Phil Wall, the longest, shortest hitter, and Damien Schutte and Shooter and Kipper and all that. It was just rolling off the tongue. 
to be in that position, I'm like, wow, uh, this is amazing. And he was talking about Noda flying on his private jet from some event to some tournament and all this sort of stuff. Um, so fair to say that I'd landed on my feet in regards to that week in getting Casey's uh, bag for the week. But, but this is no easy journey. I mean, you've just had to outline the fact that you've taken a, a series of risks. I mean, this is to become a, a caddy, which Shooter and I, but particularly Shooter more than me, will refer to them as glorified concierges. Um, but in reality, I mean, this was, this was a, a passion project and you were hell-bent yeah. on pursuing this and I'm going to get a bag and I'm not just going to go to one town and if I don't get one, I'm coming home. It's the same way a tour player would grind trying to make cuts or trying to play secondary tours like Hooters or otherwise in the US. Took a lot of courage. So what was the, why was cutting such an exciting motivation for you that would make you want to take that risk? Phil, I think for me personally, and it's going to be different for everyone, even Kipper would uh, give a, I'm sure he'd give a different answer as to the reasons why he did it. But for me personally, I guess identifying the level of golf within myself, I found was not attainable to the level that I would want to without the time investment. So being a part, and I use the word team, being a part of a team and being consulted in regards to, okay, what distance have we got? Where's the pin? Where's the wind at? How? Where do I have to bounce it? Um, what number is it? All these sorts of things. What did I hit on the second hole and you're now on the 12th hole, so you've got to quickly revert back? So it's not just walking down cleaning clubs. It's all these conversations. And I guess over my journey, I believe that varies with every caddy based on the relationship you have with your player as well, whether they allow you to – they'll allow you a certain level that they want your involvement at, you know. Um, some of them, and I think Allenby does his own yardage book and Kipper could confirm that. But, um, you know, for me, the relationships that I had with the guys, I was allowed to give numbers, give wind direction, give uh, landing numbers, um, look at rollouts, how far it was rolling out after it pitched, trying to think what other information, previous clubs that I hit on other holes that I would remember and go, well, this is similar to the shot that we hit on the third and you use words like we and that and sort of thing. And I didn't really get berated over my journey of caddying um, for any of those or that use of term of we, us, but was very respectful of the work that the player would do in achieving their results. As in, you know, Brad had won that 2000 Vic Open. He also won the Aussie Amateur that year as well. Um, and they were, they were my two hang my hat on those two events. And outside of that, there was nothing really else that uh, eventuated for me in any capacity for wins. You know, but, but just did, being involved in. Sorry, Phil. I was going to say, but it created a lifelong connection um, that you've had with with Casey Martin, and we'll touch on on your side role as a, a college scout uh, in a second. But there was one last thing that I wanted to to bring up um, from a caddying point of view is you had the pleasure of doing what very few people have been able to do, which was to sit on a fairway and watching someone hit balls and filming them. Oh, yes, correct, Phil. And that comes back to that Canadian Open at um, Toronto where the first gig that I did for Casey. And I reckon it was maybe the second day. If it wasn't the second, it was definitely Pro-Am day. And um, what eventuated was that the guys were on the practice range and, we're, and I was there with Casey and we're hitting balls on the range. And um, I'd had my video camera that I'd taken with me just as an added bonus of going, maybe I can utilize this with the players, who knows? So I had my video camera with me at the time. And then um, we were down the right-hand side of the range. And then down the left, there was a bit of a gathering of some people and some players. And everyone started turning around because they've got their back to the left side of the range and they start turning around. And there's this gravitation of the driving range and the pro players all moving to the left-hand side of the range. And I'm like, what's going on? And then just that comment, what's going on? Oh, it's Mo Norman. And I had heard of Mo Norman. And I'm like, you're joking me. Quickly grab my video camera, run down, and here's Mo Norman. And I'm only guessing, this is 2003. Mo looked probably 85, if not 95, but probably was early 60s, <laughs> mid-60s. It had a tough life, it's fair to say. Um, on the surface, on the exterior. But here's Mo Norman at that age, and I don't know what age he passed at, but um, 2003, Mo Norman had the whole driving range watching him hit balls. Now, I'm pretty sure, Phil, with your knowledge of golf and Mo Norman's setup, that he had a unique setup 
with his own golf equipment. And he wasn't using his own golf equipment. He was just borrowing it out of someone's bag that had said, here, Mo, hit this, hit this. And so they also had the um, CBS Golf Channel commentator there, um, Jerry Foltz, who was following the nationwide event. So Jerry's down as well, like, and asking Mo questions and interviewing Mo almost like, and I've got this on video standing directly down the line behind Mo Norman, watching him pipe drivers, four irons, three irons, short irons and mid irons, all to within a blanket. You can throw a blanket over them at this age, and I'm getting goosebumps now telling you about it. Um, once again, money can't buy experience that I've got video footage of Mo Norman doing that and Mo telling stories because Jerry's quizzing him, oh, Mo, what was your best round of golf? Two pins or four pins, whatever it was. And I'd never heard or seen this guy in person, had heard about it and hadn't really heard the myths. And his best round is where he hit four pins in a day in the 18 holes that he played. You know, had a hard, tough upbringing that I'd done a little bit of research and reading on since experiencing Mo back then in 2003. Um, and you just take your hat off to that grind that you're talking about. Um, read stories where blistered hands, he would just hit balls until they bled with blisters to get himself to a level where he wanted to be. And Phil, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a Mo story that I think I've heard whereby he was leading an event or whatever coming down the 72nd hole and hit it into the bunker deliberately on the last hole to challenge himself to see if he'd get up and down to win. He, did, he actually putted it into the he putted it into the bunker. He was on the green. Yeah, something like that. And putted in the bunker. So it would be fair to say he was the best ball striker you've seen, but, but by far that is the best known drop. And Kipper's got it. In fact, Kipper's gone with Tiger, so it's probably the second best known drop that we've got going around. But again, it's the this ability for golf to deliver experiences that don't necessarily be come about from playing and I think this is the the whole point when we look at the the reason well why am I interviewing Dirk well it's this idea that golf has got these touch points that continue to extend through life and give you stories to talk about that can be beyond playing whether you're still capable or still have the desire otherwise but from there we move back to the business of golf and I just want to focus on Mizuno now because you're, you're in charge of Mizuno golf in Australia and and there's momentum and there's momentum on golf's side. What's Mizuno's best kept secret? And yes, this is a bit of a free kick, but it's an important one because you've, you've had this breadth of experience. So what's Mizuno's best kept secret? Or, or why would you say to someone, and not as an ad, but why Mizuno? Um, so question to you, Phil, why Mizuno from my perspective or why Mizuno for a consumer looking at golf equipment? Um, yes, yeah, so why am I... What what sets Mizuno apart without without the marketing? Like, don't give me an ad. You're part of its DNA. You you live it, and we'll get on to the embarrassment of me asking a bad question of Chris Vachel soon. But um, but but what is it that sets Mizuno apart? The way that I would answer that question, Phil, is I think it's the people they're involved with the business, and I guess this stems from the origins of the company that started in 1906 with the family Mizuno. Um, started in baseball gloves and then started uh, golf equipment in the early 30s, 1932. And today we still have the president, Mr. Akito Mizuno, heading up the business. Now, it's still a family-run business. And when I say the people, he's still involved in the business. Now, he's got some sons um, at, I, I suppose, in their early or mid-30s. Now, whether they're going to take over the business when he steps aside or not, I don't know. But in regards to the people, Phil, it's almost like it's a passion. It's an obsession in delivering pristine and prime golf equipment. I even talk in a similar vein about the people um, in Australia here. You look at um, our production manager, Phil Watson, that oozes, breathes and eats Mizuno um, to the point that he weight sorts all of the grips um, that goes on to the sets of our golf clubs now, talking about Phil in this vein, he's very uncomfortable when someone regrips a set of Mizuno golf clubs at their local pro shop or their, their local um, golf store because the grips aren't weight sorted when they go back and that affects the swing weight. Now, Phil builds to a swing weight to the point that if you give him the shaft, the length, the head and the grip, he knows what swing weight that's coming out. It's almost like Dustin Hoffman, like Rain Man. Now, that's his obsession. 
Um, and then you talk about the R&D departments in Japan and in the US that work concurrently on bringing models to market, et cetera, and not involved in the business of developing prototypes. It's basically, we will bring this model to market for the elite golfer at the professional level to use, but we will stamp it as it is for the, the retail market and it won't be stamped PT or prototype or the, uh, the player's initials on there so that the end user can also use the same equipment as what the professionals are using on tour. Um, and in talking about that, the design process that goes through, and I guess it goes through for every brand, but I feel with the Mizuno, it's a heightened level of expertise that we achieve in delivering this product to give the athlete the best chance at success. And I know it may sound funny that we're calling golfers athletes, but in essence, that's what they are. They're trying, they're earning a living and playing for a living um, by offering a different wide varied range of golf equipment that is pristine. And I think it's fair to say that the tagline or our marketing line, nothing feels like a Mizuno. We didn't have to come up with that. That's come up for, that's been delivered from the consumers. We've, got onto the back of that and now use that as our hashtag tagline. Nothing feels like a Mizuno. We are renowned for our irons that we do deliver and bring to market. Now, a couple of, of myths that, that do exist, and there's only a couple, but, but one that you hear quite a bit and from people who are not quite as aware of things as they'd like to spout off, oh, all four shines come out of one or two foundries in in. Japan or China, like they're all made in the same joint. This, is, this I think, is one of the great things about Mizuno, um, particularly from a, a, their forgery. Confirm, so all four shines come out of one foundry. True or false? <laughs> Mizuno's irons, forged irons, come out of one factory, the Chuo factory in Japan. Um, How many that, other brands do they make for? Um, good question, Phil. I can't answer that. I don't think there's any. It's us only. There's zero. Yeah, we have a handshake agreement with them based uh, that dates back 50 and 60 years. There's no written document signed. And basically, they produce the forgings for Mizuno that we then bring to market, obviously, with other finishing processes on them, etc. Um, the forging process starts there. And we are very fortunate to have them and having worked so close with them over the years to develop the technologies like the grain flow forging, the HDD um, grain flow forging as well in recent years. Also the billets that we use, the 1025E, the softer, the, the higher carbon element in there than what other forging companies use. So but, yeah. yeah, we come out of the Chuo factory in Japan. But And the thing that I love most about that is that it is based on a hand, this is a handshake agreement of exclusivity. It's not a, a legal binding document which will upset Tree. What about this this one that forged, there's forged and there's forged. So when someone declares forged, is it is it as forged as others or do you want to leave that alone? <laughs> well, Phil, and look, I can't, and sorry, I, it's not that I can, can't. Um, it, what I'm tr understanding there are forged and there are forged. There's a way that we forge a golf club and then there's ways that others forge a golf club. Our forging has no welds or um, has less inconsistencies in the end product as opposed to what our other competitors uh, forge their golf clubs with. There are x-rays that you can see of golf clubs that are in the market today that have welds in the hosel because those companies are unable to forge the head as one piece. Whereas Mizuno, with our technologies, we're able to deliver that in partnership with the Chuo factory. So, yes, there is a difference between forged golf clubs for sure. Um, okay. Now, you deal with some pretty smart dudes at Mizuno, uh, and one of them <laughs> um, is a guy by the name of Chris Voschel, who's – when you see any videos of Chris Voschel, you, you see the passion uh, in his voice when he's talking about new product, and I certainly – personally was a, 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 um, a recipient of his passion and knowledge when I asked him a question many years ago about how a, a driver sits and whether or not you can adjust face angle and loft independently. And his, his answer, he just looked at me and said, sorry, is that with a single cog or a dual cog driver fitting? And then I shut up for the rest of the evening. But can you tell when you hear Chris do a presentation, can you tell based on how he speaks if a product is a leap or a step? Can you genuinely pick up from him 
whether there's, look, I'm excited because this is kind of part of my job or I'm excited because I just can't believe we've done it. So the interesting thing in relation to Vosh is he was a re- he's an engineer and was in the R&D department for, I think, 15 or 16 years and has moved away from that division in recent years to become the marketing brand manager of the USA office. So what he brings to the marketing and the brand management is his understanding of um, designing and uh, engineering golf clubs and what is required. So as you say, in a video, you're getting warts and all the deep dive from the guy that used to bring these irons to life and bring the technologies to market. And now having a marketing version or a brand version of that in his presentations I think, Phil, and when you're asking that question, when he speaks to golf clubs, do you do you get a feeling that something is new and groundbreaking? Definitely. And I think, like I shared earlier in saying what's um, the secret about Mizuno, the staff, you touched on it there, the passion that he uses and brings. You know, and that comes across in our other R&D, our director of product as well, Dave Llewellyn out of the US who speaks um, about Mizuno product. You've also got Bill Price, who's very passionate about fitting and about the Mizuno process and the Mizuno brand. Now, these three names that I've just mentioned, I think Bill Price has been at Mizuno for over 20 years. Dave Llewellyn's been there for over 20 years. And I think Vosh, who's near 40 years of age, if he's not already, has been there like 18 years. So it's almost like you get to Mizuno, you become ingrained and entrenched in what is the DNA of Mizuno and you just bleed blue and don't leave, you know? Um, But specifically to answer your question there, Phil, I think back to when um, Mizuno brought JPX 900 to market and there was the Chrome Molly story in the HM iron um, that we were talking about and hearing Vosh talk about that for the first time and then the 919 HM and hearing the stories from the R&D team um, in relation to that being a one-piece cast golf club and the complexities that are involved with the casting mould and having to get that off of the head and how detailed that is, the actual casting factory don't like making that golf club because it's so complex. But we are prepared to pay the price for that because of what the end product delivers for the end user, the gains and benefits that it brings. And you you relay that in your um, conversation and your um, presentations to our golf accounts in Mizuno Australia and Mizuno globally worldwide, as well as to consumers at fitting events and in retail stores. You know, So we just hope that, and I suppose hope's not the right word, I feel comfortable to say that when you're having an interaction with a Mizuno person, um, that that passion, desire, to assist and give you the best chance at success is coming across in every interaction, you know, and there will be instances where we fall short of that mark, definitely. Um, but then we need to make up for that in other areas as well. So from a, a Mizuno, the, the last point, because I'm going to finish, um, which I'll, I'll, as I always do, where you're going to have to pitch us golf. But the last thing I want to talk about is a little bit about elite player involvement. And, and one of the stats that I saw, um, funnily enough, this morning is that um, 14 of the last 24 world number ones have at some point in time played Mizuno in their bag. So it, it shows this performance element, element without being contracted to, to play it. But there's one story that stood out to me, and it was a local story about a young um, aspiring superstar and a story about her and a Mizuno staff bag. Just in oh, terms of okay. the passion, yes. the joy and the passion, which yes. I just, I love this story, particularly before we get on to the last piece. So can you just very quickly relay um, how much humility that, that some elite aspiring players have? Yeah, so one of the guys in our office, um, our national fitting guy, Steve Kent, has a relationship with Kari Webb um, through personal relationship. Um, just their, Steve's wife is grew up with Kari playing golf in Queensland, etc. So he's in contact with her a couple of times a year, a few times a year, and just having conversations, etc. Um, and he was explaining to her about trying to explore and make a mark into professional golf. And Kari shared, I believe Kari shared the name Steph Bunky, Stephanie Bunky. And so Steve then pursued that, reached out to Stephanie, who's based here in Melbourne, um, where our office is, and made contact, etc. cetera, um, started speaking to her. 
and we ended up having Steph come into the office for a fitting when we weren't in COVID lockdowns, obviously. And um, we spoke about becoming an ambassador, using our product, etc. She's on a journey. Uh, she's actually in the US at the moment. She landed there last week or week before um, to play some events. But um, she's very early on in her professional career. Um, Steve also has a relationship via his wife and Kari with um, some other female professional golfers who now work in a not in the professional capacity, but work in, um, I guess, the behind the scenes uh, WLPGA type thing. Um, and having conversations with them, they said, yep, Steph's identified. You should reach out to her even further and, yeah, pursue her. She'd be a great get. So Steve in fitting Steph out in the office, etc., and I had the pleasure of watching Steph hit some shots. And I just stood there and we actually had a few of the office guys come in um, looking at it, Phil, our production manager, was in the, the room watching her being fit because he was involved in the build of her golf clubs as well and just sharing some knowledge and understandings. And they got to the end of the fitting, etc. and we're working out how we're going to fit um, or kit Steph out, bag, etc., etc. Um, and Steve asked the question of Steph and said, um, well, do you want a staff bag? Oh, I've never really had one. They're just – I've always dreamed of having one. It would be just so awesome. I've always wanted my name on a staff bag, but I probably won't use it. So just the carry bag will be fine. So Steve comes to me and uh, shared that story with me. And I said, right, go and get a staff bag, put a name on it, and we'll leave it as a surprise. But get the other bag that she'll use all the time as well. Um, and then got the build of the clubs done, called Steph in. And I wasn't in the office this day, but Steve shared with me that um, – when Steph came into the fitting room and he had there out front and proud the staff bag with the clubs in it, with her name on it, she actually cried and <laughs> hugged him and just said, this is amazing. This is unbelievable. And again, Phil, I'm getting those chills yeah, yeah. down my spine and on my arm, the goosebumps just from making someone at that level happy. And it, I guess it's a dream come true, you know? If you can do that and have that reaction and that result, it gives you, as I said, those chills and those goosebumps that someone out there is having the best chance at success. They've got something that they aspired to, never thought that they would, but just by way of, yep, put the name on it, there you go, away you go, go your best. So fingers crossed, we'll be watching the results of Steph tour Steph's tournaments over in the US at the moment. And uh see how she fares in the coming months. Yeah, and there'll be more, some more news coming out of uh, Mizuno about some WPGA um, talent as well in the next couple of months. Um, but where I'd like to leave it today, Anthony, because um, it's a hell of a journey from, from, as I say, playing to cutting and just your breadth of business. But, but most importantly, where we like to leave these things is an understanding of how you would sell golf, a little bit of what golf does well or what golf needs to do better. But in reality, you're standing in front of a room full of people who can head to play a number of different sports. Sell me golf. Well, I guess in the current environment, you look at it as an outdoor activity, socially distanced, <laughs> um, but that's the obvious. So that's not really selling it. Um, for me, I believe it's the engagement, the camaraderie, the mateship that it brings with your playing partners. And the thing that staggers me with golf is that you will hear and come across in the industry of people that play uh, week in, week out. I play once a week. I play every Saturday. I play at 8.36am. I play with the same guys, rain, hail or shine. They've got a bond. They are mates. They'll go into the trenches together with the weather and they will play and they will play to the best of their ability. And whether they shoot off a handicap of 10, they shoot 100, they shoot 80, they shoot 120. They'll be back there at 8.36 the following week weekend to play again. Um, so it's I guess having that comfort and knowing what you're going to do, whom you're going to be surrounded with, what topics are going to be spoken about, what curveball am I going to be throwing this week in relation to the condition of the golf course, in relation to the weather. Um, I think where golf needs to get to is to reduce the amount of time that it does take to play. Um, and I had a chat with another fellow in the industry uh, several months ago, maybe even last year, it's gone that quickly this year, that I believe the success of golf is in a six-hole version. 
Um, and I am slightly aware, but not completely over the detail of, I think you, Phil, may have shared or mentioned to me about a mini golf course or a mini version at La Trobe that is up and running at the moment. Um, but it's things like that. Soon to be. Yeah. yeah later this year. Yep. So I think it's things like that moving with the times. Everyone pre-COVID is, was becoming very time poor. Time is of the essence. There's a lot more opportunities um, in every other sport these days with information and technologies. Um, I don't know that range finders and zapping pins and all that during tournament play for professionals is going to speed it up. So speed of play needs to be increased. I think if you reduce the amount of holes and had a, I guess, a 2020 version of golf across a modified six-hole version that could be played in, say, one and a half to two hours, um, allowing those guys that go out at 8.36am every Saturday morning to catch up and do it in a third of the time of what they'd normally do, you'd probably have more engagement. And if they were able to extend that across more than one day of the seven-day week, you'd probably have higher rounds, but then I wonder whether the condition of the course would be maintained as well. So I feel that's what needs to happen with golf to keep it um, stimulated and live. And I guess the biggest uh, boom that we've encountered of recent times is what we want to maintain with the game of golf. And I see forward we, and as you say, Phil, you've got a room of people that with community sport opening back up across the varied um, ball sports as in cricket, AFL, NRL, um, soccer, uh, basketball, you want all of these people that have come to golf or come back to golf in the last 18 months to stay with us and on this journey because playing golf is only one aspect of it that I guess we've touched on in this time that we've been chatting about it. There's many other avenues that it can lead to and other journeys and life experiences that money can't buy if you're fortunate enough to have that situation arise for you. Beautifully said, uh, Anthony. And on that note, um, I thank you, Anthony Gurkovich, for your time today. And we'll bring our Tenuous Links golf podcast to a close. Remember to uh, subscribe at golfbarons.com for all updates on podcasts, show updates, uh, and everything else. You can catch the show on KO Sports or on Fox Sports On Demand. And until next time, Barons, add some swaggity a swing. <laughs>